What up, this is Dart Adams, and this is Dart Against Humanity, episode 27. One of the recent things that happened involves uh, LeBron James' show on HBO, The Shop. And in it, there's a clip that's been making the rounds through social media. Everybody's been talking about it, uh, where Drake comments that he studies rap battles for a living. And LeBron James declared himself a hip-hop historian. Now, there's some people that have no issue with what either of them said. And they're finding ways to rationalize what they're saying. Like, this is what they meant. Well, here's the thing. I'm a journalist. I'm a writer. Um, I live by the meanings of words. And words mean things. And when you make a statement, if it isn't factual or based in truth or an exaggeration or hyperbole, it's going to get called out. So Drake, his livelihood does not depend on his knowledge of rap battles. It absolutely doesn't. He's an entertainer. Sure, he's an um, entrepreneur, he does brand deals, I'm sure he does some things with licensing, he's, um, he's an ambassador to, uh, for certain brands and corporations, like he, he was like the ambassador to the, for the uh, Toronto Raptors, he, he, has, he has deals in place with Nike and all these other entities. So, and sure, he has a, he collaborates or he has a partnership with, you know, King of the Dot and things of that nature. He's passed up going to major events to be at theirs, you know, at their battles or, or, or their uh, pay-per-views or what have you. That doesn't mean that your livelihood depends on your study or your knowledge of rap battles throughout the ages. It doesn't. And LeBron James calling himself a hip-hop historian is problematic for me because, well, I actually am a hip-hop historian. I've gone through the last, uh, let's see, 2005. So 13 going on 14 years of being a reputed hip-hop historian who's answered questions who's outlined whole spans of history, whole stretches of time, uh, interims, you know, uh, uh, micro errors. I've outlined these out. I've, I've told people where they began, the event that started them, when they stopped, the event in which it, it ended. I've broken down errors. I've gone done meticulous research i've done so much writing on hip-hop culture and these different eras and different events and things that dig deep into hip-hop culture not just surface shit to the point where i've never been published in a hip-hop magazine or rap publication but i've been quoted in books I've been brought into universities and spoken to classes that teach music history and hip hop courses as a guest speaker. I've had I've had professors and students ask me questions at length. I've had people for the last uh, 10 to 12 years uh, interview me for books or articles that they've written or have me as an authority. If you look at different hip-hop books that have been released, you'll see my name in the thank yous. When people write articles about anything from uh, the early days of hip-hop, r- rhyme battles, uh, beat tape culture, uh, hip-hop fashion, any uh, b-boying, the, the history of DJs, whether they're doing a documentary, whether they're, they're doing an article, anything of that nature... My name is on the list of people who you need to talk to. Um, 
And this is something that's been going on for a decade plus. It doesn't yield a whole lot of financial reward. And a lot of the work I do is thankless. And that's been the way it's been for well over 10 to 12 years. I'm still trying to get on and get a a real position at one of these uh, schools of higher learning or colleges, universities, what have you. Doing the thing that I'm an expert at. So it's a slap in the face for LeBron James, who is a, a basketball player. He's a pitch man. He's a um. He's an entrepreneur, sure. He's a producer. He's produced several television shows and um worked in film. He's done acting jobs. He's going to be in um face uh, Space Jam two. You know he's he actually produced one of my favorite shows of the last ten years, uh, Survivor's Remorse, which is actually a show about a black family from Boston, this Dorchester section, but it wasn't filmed entirely in Boston. They filmed it in Atlanta, but they came back to Boston several times. And actually, I think it was kind of inspired by um, Shabazz Napier from Roxbury and his family. But just the idea that you call yourself a hip hop historian without any of the actual credentials or any of the actual work of putting in the, the man hours like I have, that's... Uh, no, you can't do that. Words mean things. But moreover than that, um, I wanted to do this episode because, you know, it's time. But also, it's hard to do certain episodes for me based on what's going on. And I tried to throw that out like, OK, five o'clock, the Red Sox play game four. Of the ALCS versus the Houston Astros. Or game three. It's Yeah, game three. Because it's tied 1-1. And they play games three and four in Houston. Okay? That's at five. At eight, the Boston Celtics open the NBA season versus the uh, Philadelphia 76ers. It, so, that's going to be the opening game of the NBA season. That's a marquee matchup. That's huge. And this city is going to be on fire. And again, we had a day where the Patriots played uh, a um, Sunday night game. And um, we had the Boston Red Sox play game two of the ALCS in Fenway Park. And I was doing an event that night. Uh, the Stu Beach Showcase Battle, which is what I'm, I'm the resident judge of. So we did that. We moved that show up early. So we did it like four or five doors at four, set up at five. And then we did it. And when it was done, we had both the Red Sox game and the Patriots game going after the event was over. I decided to walk home because when I walk home from um, Austin Brighton, I'm going to walk by Fenway Park. I'm hearing cheering from Fenway Park as the game's going on to end up winning the game. When people are getting struck struck out, I'm I'm maybe a mile or more past Fenway Park. I can hear people cheering from the park. Like it makes sense if you can hear you don't know Boston geography. It, it, it makes sense if you can hear cheering from Fenway Park and Kenmore Square. Now, Newberry Street isn't too far from Kenmore Square, but if you can hear the park from Newberry Street, that's impressive. But if you can hear the park from Newberry Street to Boylston Street, which is what I did when um, Porcello struck out Gonzalez, I hear a che- I'm about to go in through the mall because I cut through the mall to go home, and I'm like, wow. So... It's just moments like that that you can't purchase, like you can't buy anywhere. So it's like I enjoy, you know, the city on nights like that. But the thing is that it it's almost counter programming to do certain things on days like this. But here's the thing. Everybody who listens to this podcast isn't from Boston. But also. This podcast can be played at any time, so I don't have to worry about that. So 
just putting that thought in my head that you don't do certain things on certain days. It's like when I get mad that people don't want to post uh, anniversary pieces on a Saturday because people don't frequent on frequent um, websites on Saturday as much as they would on a Friday, which doesn't make sense because now you're totally free to do whatever you want because you're not constrained by work or what have you or you're going out necessarily for the weekend or doing all these other things. So you can do whatever you want with your weekend. So why wouldn't you post something on a Saturday when nobody else is posting things? Now everybody, now you have everybody's attention. So I don't believe in that type of stuff. So, you know, doing a podcast, do, do the shit when you want to. Don't worry about it. But it also begs the question, like I was talking about being um, a hip-hop historian. I have an odd relationship with the space of um, academia in regards to hip-hop or what I write about. The crazy thing is, as I've mentioned before, I haven't been published in any rap magazines or hip-hop publications because of the the writing and the nature of the pieces that I do, they don't really help promote the mainstream rap media or industry at all. Because I do more things about the culture or the art or the craft. You know, I do that type of stuff. I do those type of pieces. And that's not really anything that the media, that the that people can really use. And if I do write pieces of that nature, of a promotional matter, if you could swing it that way, it's usually for an independent or underground artist. That's where my interest lies. I'm not really super big on mainstream rap acts. I don't care for them that like that. I just don't. And it's not even super biased. Like, if you're dope, you're dope. But for the most part, that's not what I'm going to find in the mainstream machine. So I found that most of my writing has found an audience within the world of academia. I haven't been published in any magazines, but I've found my way into several books. That was me walking down my hallway and running into a fucking hanger. That was right there in the hallway. So I'm in my room. There's a book called Packaging Boyhood, Lynn Michael Brown, Sharon Lamb, some other people. Basically, it uh, was written by a bunch of psychologists who all managed to uh, teach in New England um, schools. And one of my quotes ended up landing in this book, Packaging Boyhood, uh, thanks to uh, Matt Mason, who I knew from uh, the U.K., and sites like the census or uh, uh, Rewind, RWD magazine and all these other grime forums or um, UK music forums. And we known each other going back to like 2004, 2005. And I was an authority on music and culture and history. So he started reading my blog that I started in 2007, Poisonous Paragraphs. And he was like, I read this piece you did in Poison's Paragraphs that really like moved me. He was like, uh, can I quote it in my book? I'm like, absolutely. And so the book comes out. And it's called The Pirate's Dilemma, How Youth Culture is Reinventing Capitalism by Matt Mason. Matt Mason, I believe he also went on to um, have a position at BitTorrent uh, right after that. And he quoted me in his book. Then, you know, several other journalists, you know, started like quoting me in their articles, their national articles. And then I got more and more attention Then you know, some of my local friends were like, hey, won't you come speak, you know, or, or help me out with this presentation or speak to my class or talk to these faculty members. And again, when you live in Boston and in my neighborhood, there's about 10 to 12 colleges and universities just in short walking distance. So I'm on somebody's campus all the time. So I'm always at an event speaking with somebody who works somewhere. I have a whole bunch of, you know, connects at all these different institutions. So I end up writing more and more pieces about micro generations and breaking down things in hip hop and they're eating it up. They love it because the, and the thing is that I don't write these pieces for the academics. 
I started writing these pieces back in 2004 or 5 on allhiphop.com because there was a thread. There was a thread that was started, um, school me on some hip hop. And the guy who started the thread couldn't answer any questions. He pretty much threw it up there so anybody could jump in and answer questions. I, in one week, there were 20 hanging questions. I answered 18 of them and somebody else answered the other two. So what happened was they essentially gave me the thread and made me a moderator of the site. This is the old days of all hip hop. This is when it used to crash all the time and you, you and people used to always like hack it. Yeah, it was like the Wild West when the reason there was no reason there was just a bunch of dipset stands. So I started gaining a reputation from this. And then people started emailing me hip hop questions. Then it just got to the point where I was also on OK Player at the same time. And OK Player is chock full of people to just know a gang about music. You know, I think I mentioned Dr. Claw and and John Book and, you know, a whole bunch of other people before, like who who are just there, who just know the music industry and know certain things and are just masters it's different eras of music too to just know them inside and out you know you have people on twitter like stereo williams you have naima and it's like they just break down entire things and just do entire timelines like in regards to the music and you know they're just wells of information but i felt that within the space of rap journalism there was nothing for me to do as far as like the the established rap blogosphere. I had people who read me, but those people who read me didn't necessarily read rap magazines because they didn't cater to them. They didn't talk about the things they cared to talk about. And a lot of the independent magazines I came up with, like Stress, Mass Appeal, On The Go, Ego Trip, no longer exist by the time we get to me writing they folded you know i was never going to write for vibe because i didn't have the right resume you know the source was in flux going back and forth and i've critiqued the source so much that i don't think they'll ever like and plus did they did they really pay people you know so it was like that was never going to happen occasionally like people would reach out to me and i'd do a piece but because of whatever reason, I didn't uh, follow up on it and do more pieces. Uh, Jamila Lemieux gave me an opportunity to write a piece for Ebony that was really big. And yes, they paid me. You can't not pay me. They they did not duck me. Uh, I did a piece. I did a piece I really hoped was going to lead to something more with the boombox. But they kind of fucked me on how much money I was getting paid for it. It took me forever to get paid. And their site was so clunky that I couldn't do the full piece I wanted to. So I cut it in half just so I could get out of it. So that was a bad experience, you know. So it's like there were a lot of different things where I had an opportunity to do more. But of course, it's a site. I had um, my entire history, my entire um, rundown, the history of um, Hip Hop Wired, which ended badly. It was a good run while I had it, but it really ended badly. And, you know, I was just like getting coming to my wits end with working for sites because you learn very soon that things are good until they're not. You know, never think that you're going to be at a place for a really long time. Things are usually good until they're not. You know, my first run with OK Player ended. Now I'm doing another one working with different people. Uh. I did an entire year, which was pretty good. I had probably one of the best editors I've ever had um, working at uh, Mass Appeal. The, the Knowledge Darts thing, that was probably one of my best experiences. Having my own column, having the leeway to do what I want, write about the subjects I want. Um, know that it's going up and knowing that my check is coming on time that's really big um if you live as a freelancer the net 30 
Net 60 world is scary when your rent, cable, internet, uh, food, all these things, you know, are pending. And this is, again, I think I talked about some of these subjects in um, the life of a creative man. Like, this shit all hinges. It's all on, it's all on a, a cliff, man. And it could go bad really quickly. So I have to constantly work and look for things to ensure that, you know, I'll be around next year. No Craig Mack. I'm doing okay now, but, you know... Like I said, I think check back in three months, you know, because you never know what can happen. Like there's stretches of six months where I'm doing super well and things are just flying. And then there's a stretch of like a month and a half, two months where it's like, yo, if something doesn't come through soon, you know, I might have to do this, this and this. So that's always an issue. And so when someone calls themselves a hip hop historian, I'm like, fam, hip hop historians aren't, you know, copping new houses out here so why would anybody claim to be a hip-hop historian knowing that that shit is not valued in this space but the world of academia you know there are people that are getting positions and getting opportunities you know they're writing they're they're doing panel discussions but sometimes you just look and you're like i know more than that person or I had the immersion that they don't have. I understand things that they don't. And they're taking this to a space purely based in academia and not their immersion in the culture or the music. Like there's, there are things, underlying things that they don't understand. It's like um, one of the things that used to bother me about Genius was Genius is a site based on people annotating rap lyrics. But the people that are annotating the rap lyrics don't always know what they're talking about. So a lot of the times you go and you you go and you look on Genius and you're like, yo, this is absolutely wrong. This breakdown is completely wrong. And you're like, I could fix it. But why am I going to help these fucking assholes out? And that's the thing about the culture. You could be a nerd in rap. It's not the same as being a fucking cornball. When you're a nerd or a geek about something, then that means that you understand it on the nth level, hopefully. There are some people that miss things because they focus so much on one aspect that they don't understand the totality of it or the entire diaspora or everything underlying, which is a problem. But for the most part, there are people that only like the surface. They just like the excitement or they like the rush or they like the association or the the cachet of cool that comes with it. And they don't fully understand that what they're doing is not just, oh, I'm just going like uh, the film black and white. There were a lot of kids that were like, yeah, I can be involved in this now. But, you know, at some point I'm going to grow up. I don't get that luxury. This is my life. This is going to carry me through my life. So my understanding and my connection to it is way deeper than I did this book on this figure in rap. Because I'm like, doing that figure on this one person in rap is like narrow casting and is leaving out the stories of 50 to 100 other people that deserve mention. So the articles and the pieces that I typically want to do in rap and hip hop are not things that... I'm going to say to most editors or people at magazines, I want to do this piece. And they're going to be like, oh, yo, that's a dope idea. Because they'd much rather cover little Baby. Because that's where the culture, and I'm using air quotes you can't see, is headed. They don't want to do things that might have weight that people are going to read five, ten years from now. They want those hits because they need that ad revenue now. Now. You know, they're not buying food for the winter so they can make stew later so they can do this later. So I'll be good for December. They just want to get high right now. 
They're chasing that high right now. They're not thinking about living until 2019. They're thinking about chasing that hit, that next hit. And when you're desperate like that, and when you think short range like that and short term like that, you're going to go out and do some stuff just to take care of yourself now, as opposed to doing things to take care of yourself going forward, which is what I do. I want to write pieces that people are going to read 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. I've been at this since 2005, 2006. You can find articles that people still comment on and quote to this day from my all hip hop and poisonous paragraphs days. I still get comments on my old pieces that I wrote in 2007, 2008. And I look at my inbox on Gmail and I'm like, really? People still commenting on that? I just recently went back and looked at my um my views for the old blog and I was blown away that people still read this shit. And the crazy thing is that I can write way better now. So the world of academia, I'm going to be back at Harvard on on Thursday, the 18th. So it's this real weird thing with me. I recently, again, got interviewed and asked about my feelings about, you know, the intersection between hip hop and academia. But again, I keep getting pulled into that space and I would love to get a position or a job in there, you know, so I can be next to the people like Ninth Wonder, my boy Tef Poe, um, Acrobatic has been doing work at uh, UMass Boston, my boy Pacey, pa- Pacey Foster, who has the um, the Massachusetts New England hip hop archive going. Uh, there's the uh, the archive at uh, at Harvard, but we're not as attached to that. Like I can't just walk into the Harvard archive anytime I feel like it. I know people there, but there has to be like an event and I have to have a meeting and something like that. So it's not like... And plus, there aren't that many people in the scene who have access or have connections with the archive. I've known several people that are Nasir Jones fellows. I know several people that work with the archive. I'm going to be there quite often. I'm right over the bridge. That's not everybody else's experience. And I realize I'm in a privileged space in regards to that. So there's that, right? Um, Also... Interesting thing, right? It's now October 16th. October 15th is usually the first day of cuffing season. Now, for some people, cuffing season is like this thing that they heard about on Twitter or whatever, on social media. But I'm old. Cuffing season is a very real thing that we used to talk about going back to like fourth, fifth grade. And for me, fourth, fifth grade is 1984-85. And um, one of the reasons is because we're in Massachusetts slash New England where the weather changes. And we're in a space where there's a bunch of colleges and universities. So there was always the discussion of, oh, uh oh, you know, it's getting cold. You know what it means? Time, time, time to find a boo, you know what I'm saying? It's about to be cuffing season. So 20, fast forward like 20 years and on social media, people are talking about it like it's a new phenomenon. No, it's always been a thing. But with my history background, what I did was I had to find a way to do marketing for when I started, um, when I had poison, when I had um, producers I know the early days, I always wanted an idea That I could like make into a beat tape or something like that. So I was going back and forth with my boy. uh, His name is Danny Diesel now, but back then he was D-Man. And I was like, yo, we need to make beat tapes about cuffing season. And he was he thought the idea was dope, but he he was like, I'm just going to send you folders of beats. So he did. He sent me folders of beats and I started naming the beats and sequencing them and sending them back to him to get like how he felt about them. And he liked the direction it was going. And so again, we started the cuffing season trilogy of beat tapes. I'm actually going to look up the 
actual Cuffing Season trilogy beat tapes now. Because there's a whole story behind it and the marketing involved and everything else. And how I was trying to go viral while doing them. It's really hilarious. So, um, producersiknow.bandcamp.com. Wow, there's a whole bunch of new shit here. Um, so, the first thing that I did is like I had uh, Danny do a beat tape that was called Sun. I had Crazy Visions, a guide to rock a nigga this summer. It was a summer beat tape. But that's what gave us the idea to going forward because it was supposed to be a beat tape made specifically for like, for like the summer months and give people an idea how it felt. Uh, it came out June 1st, uh, 2011. And I was like, yo, we need to do these for the seasons. And when the seasons change for um, cuffing season. So I believe the first one was um, cuffing season has returned. Cuffing season has returned. And um, that came out October 15th, 2011. Because again, cuffing season starts October 15th. It's like right in the middle of October, right more than two weeks before Halloween. Uh, That did pretty well. It had song titles like. So what's a pretty girl like you doing in a check cashers on a Friday? An ode to all the ladies rocking Kalinda boots. Uh, Damn, that's a dated reference. Kalinda was a character uh, from a show called The Good Wife. I think she's played by Archie Punjabi. And she wore these boots, these these like boots that stood out every episode. Every episode, they about to talk about like, yo, you see Kalinda's boots? So when we would be on the street and see a woman walk by, it's like, oh, she got on Kalinda boots. So that's just something that like people ain't going to really remember. And then I believe we came back in 2012. October 15, 2012, we released It's Another... um. Cufftober, the official soundtrack to Cuffing Season. And we like really went in on that one. We really like pulled out all the stops. We had a, we had a fun time with that one. Uh, and I think the third and final one we did was, well, see, Cuffing Season supposedly goes in like cycles. So we sync up Cuffing Season. People mess up and they sync up Cuffing Season with football season. No, you sync up Cuffing Season with basketball season. Um, so you have to mix college basketball and NBA basketball in order to come up with how cuffing season goes. So I usually went along those guidelines. So the last joint we did was March Madness, the postseason. Um, yoga pants affecting women, affecting men's decision making ability since 1999. Uh, dedicated to those who stay grunk spiking the ball in the friend zone. I don't believe in the friend zone. I know the friend zone is some bullshit. It's pretty much just somebody lying. Um, and it's a made up thing. But I wanted to have titles that were going to go viral, hopefully. Now, part of that was in order to promote this beat tape, I did something on um, the producers I know um, YouTube account, which is funny because people have been talking about this uh, with me for years. I made up a fake history of the beginning of cuffing season or the or the um or origins of cuffing season. And the thing is that I used my entire uh background in history. And the thing is that a lot of the facts, I'm using air quotes, a lot of the facts that I spoke about in this are actually they'll check out if you try to just surface Google them. Or you go deeper and look at the histories of certain people or the timeline of certain um, of certain practices in America. It'll check out. But it's hilarious because um, I did this joint September 15th, 2012 is a promotion for one of the other uh, uh, for the for the second B tape. So the funny thing is, if you go to Dart Adams explains the true origins of cuffing season, a lot of these things are going to um, check out. And it's funny because uh, my boy, one of my boys actually did a beat tape that I executive produced and he used audio of me speaking on cuffing season for the beat tape. And people are like, yo, 
this dude, like this historian, broke down the history of cuffing season. And I was like, um, y'all know I made that shit up, right? I made that shit up to promote a beat tape I was putting out on producers I know. It's like, and the thing was, people were checking. They were going online. They were looking stuff up. They're looking up facts about um Paul Cuff and his uh courting of his the woman that became his wife and different practices in America or like the etymology of the term cuffing. And it's all going to check out because, again, I'm a fucking historian. And I know all about New England and the history of New England and the changing of the seasons and 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 um and courting rituals and shit like that. Of course, I know about that. I'm from Boston. I have access to like the best libraries imaginable. I could just walk like I know people everywhere, man, in every space. So, of course, it's going to check out. But I also had this thing where after all this happened, we spent time a killer boombox at a, a a tech startup in um, Dudley Square, uh, smarter in the city. And one of the things we wanted to do is we wanted to branch off with the brand and come up with something that you know would excite people. So one of the things I did, like we would always make cuffing season jokes in the office, and I was like, yo, what we need to do is we need to have a um like a spinoff of Killer Boombox. And just call it like the Cuffington Post, where all the content is cuffing season related. Like you can mix in comedy, but also do like real shit. Like real things like dealing with like relationships or uh, human interaction, because in the day is in in the time of uh, real time social media. Men and women don't necessarily meet each other or, or, or deal with each other in the same way. And there are a lot of creepy motherfuckers that try to do things like on social media. So we want to both make fun of it and bring awareness and try to fix that culture through this medium. So what happened was, you know, I we had a meeting or whatever and we started putting out we started doing merch. We started doing branding. We started a new uh, Twitter account. I think it's still up called at the cuff post. It hasn't been used. The The IG, uh, the Cuffington Post IG is still, I'm thinking, being operated by Greg Ball of Killer Boombox. He does intermittent, po- intermittent posts. I used to write them and then he started doing it. But that whole IP just fell apart when we realized that like we weren't going to get the necessary push or funding to do it. And it was just an idea we could just have. But I feel like I had a real opportunity with the Cuffington Post and I had so many ideas that I wanted to do do um for it. But yeah, I had this um I had this outline for how cuffing season goes every year. I believe the only one that actually was posted was uh 2015 and it outlined the 2015-2016 uh cuffing season dates and we actually had beef with the Huffington Post because they did a related piece and like we were just going back and forth back and forth I ended up winning of course but man that was a crazy ass day in the office we had certain we had celebrities RTing it and stuff like that you know we it was it was dope But again, um, it's just something where you have an idea, you think it's going to take off, it doesn't. It's like another near miss. But tonight's going to be crazy. Um, I don't know what to expect from the Celtics like fully this season. I have my hopes. I'm hoping they win between 62 and 66 games. I don't think they're going to win 66 games. I think maybe 60 to 60 to 64 might be um, a, a better call. I think that we might get four All-Stars. I don't think Gordon Hayward's going to be an All-Star yet. I think it's going to take another season before Gordon, Gordon Hayward comes back to the uh, the player that he you know, was before the injury or what he was on on his way to do. I think I like think about halfway through the season he's really gonna start like getting his um feeling better about what he's doing. You know, I don't know 
if his stroke is 100% there. I don't know if he's any um, tentative. I feel like he was during the, um, during the preseason, but I've been told that when they, get, when they stop playing against other teams, and they start playing with each other in scrimmages, that they've been going all out and they look way better than they did in, in the preseason. I kind of also feel like they didn't want to play the preseason. They just wanted to go to the season season or they just needed time to work things out with themselves. I don't know what to expect from tonight. It could go either way. They can have a great night or they could just be trash or start out slow and then finish and finish good because I think the 76ers are really good this year. And I think that uh, Ben Simmons is going to be improved. Uh, so I don't know 100% what to expect from the Boston Red Sox in Houston. I think it could go one of two ways. Again, I'm, I'm always on the fence. Um, I think they can easily win both games in Houston. I think that Alex Bregman might have made a mistake putting up more bulletin board material for the Red Sox. I feel like the Red Sox should are not a team that you should try to motivate. They have enough to deal with on the fact that they're an 108-win team. People look at them like they're the underdog because they don't have the dominant um, bullpen. But here's the thing. The Milwaukee... Brewers have a dominant bullpen and their bullpens looks a little overworked right now. They dropped a game they should have won in game two and they almost blew, they almost shit the bed last night and they're up 2 1. So things aren't always what they seem. And then the LA Dodgers, they're, yes, they're in the, in the, um, the last two, but they might not be as good an opponent as you think. Like if Milwaukee is having trouble just trying to keep them at bay and let's say they advance and they play either the Red Sox or the Astros, they might get shellacked because it turns out that their competition level just wasn't that good. Whereas the Red Sox versus the Astros, a lot of people are looking at this like this is the World Series. Because these are the two best teams in baseball playing each other. So I just feel like tonight's crazy. Um, I'm really disappointed in... Oh, and here's, here's another thing. Now the conversation is going to uh, like rap battles and what's allowed, what's not allowed. Because Drake said that there are rules. No, there they're really, they're really aren't. The thing is that... Here's the, here's the thing. Again, me, this is me as a hip-hop historian talking. An actual one. Rules didn't come into play until the business overrode the cultural aspects. When it got to be a point where the culture wasn't predicating everything and the money was or the industry was or uh, moneyed interests were, then, yes, there were rules. You can't talk about certain things. Certain things are off the table. Certain things are off limits. Why? Because it could fuck up the money. I remember back when Roxanne Shante and Sparky D had a staged wax battle against each other. They were friends. They were they toured together. They had common friend they had common people and you know, thread. Before, I think uh, Sparky D was actually um dating um Marley Mall at the time. So she was his producer. She was around the Juice Crew all the time. And if you hear the things that she said about Sparky D on Wax, and they were and they used to they used to go out to eat together and hang out. They had to tour in the same car and shit like that. So that's trash. When you hear the things that like. Karis one was saying about members of the crew uh, and like they're running they're gonna run into each other a lot of these people have mutual friends at the time you know and the things that they said and didn't beef run up each other's uh you know resident just a whole bunch of crazy shit that happened there were no rules nothing was off the table listen to no vaseline listen to, to the break of dawn like listen to Jack the Ripper and then you come up to the 90s I think there were there were like different different bars set with different songs 
Jack the Ripper set 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 a bar for what you could do. Um, to the break of dawn, set a bar for what you could do. When Ella was talking about, he took the cover right home to the bathroom, talking about Darlene Ortiz, and like, oh, I could talk about your wife. Um, then like, no Vaseline took it to another point. Hit him up, took it to another point. Steady fucking by um, MC Light took it to another point. Big Mama by uh by Shantae. She wasn't Roxanne Shantae anymore. She was just Shantae. Um, took it to another point. These are things that you know if you're actually a hip hop historian. Um, like hit him up. He just went it like, yo, don't want you. One of y'all got sickle cell or something. What? Uh, Nas on Ether. Then uh, Jay Z on Super Ugly. Like, they're just certain things that like you could just talk about people. You could just say about people on wax. During the battle, nothing was out of bounds. You talk about people's family situations, you know, their families, you know, their child, the parentage of their children. Uh, if you think about the shit that flew back and forth during the old, um, I think the D Block, Rockefeller beef, or what later happened with um, Shady Aftermath. And G-Unit with Murder Incorporated. If you just think about some of the things, the accusation and the things that went back and forth between them. Like, what? What do you mean there's rules? There's no fucking rules. The only time people talked about, we can't talk about this is when it came up that, hey, this might hurt our bottom line. This might hurt the money. This might hurt a brand deal. We can't do that anymore. Or there have been times where um, somebody was supposed to battle. I believe um, there was this situation with Joe Budden and either Redman or um, Method Man. Oh, yeah. And what happened was they couldn't battle it out or even send responses back and forth because I believe either one or both of them were working on promoting their albums that had just come out. And you couldn't take time away from promoting your project or going on tour to do some hip hop shit. And the thing is that, again, as a hip hop historian, as somebody who didn't, who zigged when everybody zagged, I believe I wrote about this, that entire thing from that standpoint on um, on either Poisonous Paragraphs or the now the now dead Blogger House. It's probably cached somewhere, Um, but I did do a piece on that, how the hip hop culture, the aspects of hip hop cultures have been completely trumped by, you know, moneyed interest or corporate interest. So it cracks me up that somebody who claims that he studies rap battles for a living came out of his mouth and said, there are rules. No, the fuck there aren't. And he was sitting across from a hip-hop historian who said, Yep, absolutely, you're right. Who then goes on stage with motherfuckers like Quavo and Lil Baby with a fucking shirt around his waist. What the fuck is that? And people on Twitter talking about, Just because he likes that kind of music doesn't discount him saying he's a hip-hop historian. It kind of does. Because if you're a hip-hop historian who's supposed to know all this shit and have this fucking impeccable ear and 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 this taste level when you talk about how much you loved Eminem's kamikaze and you try to bully people into saying if you don't like kamikaze you probably don't understand what he's saying i understand exactly what he's saying this shit i don't want to hear it it's just not that good it's not creative Eminem hasn't really advanced much in over uh, close to 20 years February 23rd, 1999 is when his first album came out. How many albums has he put out since then that I actually want to own or do I still listen to? That's the question that a hip-hop historian would ask. Because I just said his release date of his first album off the top of my head. I remember hearing the Slim Shady EP on Minidisc when it was brought to me when I was working at Tower Records back in 1998. These are things hip-hop historians know.
I remember getting the promo VHS of I Just Don't Give a Fuck. You know? How old was LeBron when that shit came out? Don't everybody answer it once. Hard to be a hip-hop historian when a lot of the main shit that happened when the culture was taken away from the industry and the mainstream industry separated completely from the underground independence circuit. If that happened when you were on uh, before you hit puberty, chances are it's hard for you to be a hip hop historian because you don't know the break between the rap music industry and hip hop culture. You know, like if I asked you to outline everything that happened in hip hop between 1977 to 1981 and you can't do it. Chances are you're not a hip hop historian. If I ask you to name the first rap group that started a whole bunch of things that that began the growth of rap as we know it and you can't do it, you're not a hip hop historian. If I ask you to outline the main changes or the key factors in the change the changes of the rap battle through time. And I give you a timeline of, I don't know, 1979 to 1987. And you can't rattle them shits off or those dates off or those events off or those people that changed the culture off and what they did to change the culture. Or if you can't tell me about the fucking new music seminar and who were the key uh, combatants or contributors or people that went up in those battles that people still talk about today. If you can't tell me about Project Blowed or The Good Life or The Lyricist Lounge or New Yorkian Poets Cafe or or the wetlands or any of the battles like the um the scribble jams you know the rap olympics I actually did a piece about that and I broke down all that history wanna why cuz I lived it cuz I'm a fucking hip hop historian words mean things that's me stomping on the floor of my kitchen because I'm so animated and I'm so passionate about this shit that I got up from the chair I was sitting on and I walked the 20 feet into my kitchen. I had no reason to get up. I had no reason to stump my foot. I'm not a fucking preacher. Am I? I can't say I'm a preacher because I'd be lying. Because words mean things. <laughs>